0: All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, and we just ask that you would speak to us now through your word and that your spirit would uh, just come upon us and um, uh, that you would guide us into all truth and that you would just have your way with us now. So please guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 62. So reading through the Bible, and today we find ourselves in Isaiah 62, and uh, Lord willing, we'll do 62, 63, 64 today, and then next week we finish Isaiah, and then the week after that, um, uh, well, the week after we finish Isaiah, uh, then ultimately we move on into Colossians, and so... um, back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament. So looking forward to Colossians. Colossians is a great book, right? Can I give you a little nugget on Colossians? Really? Can I give you a little nugget on Colossians? Yeah. So you've, some of you heard me say before, um, first verse you ever memorize when you're a kid out of the Bible is what, John 3.16. And it, no, I noticed one time years ago that there are lots of cool verses in the Bible that have the address of 316. And I don't know if that's just, I don't know if God planned it that way. And I mean, you know, uh, man added the, the chapters and numbers after the original manuscripts and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, there are lots, if you go through the scripture, there are lots of pretty cool 316 verses. Well, perhaps one of my favorites, certainly in the top two, because you know, the, probably the top one is, my I guess? 2 Timothy 3.16, you're right, you're right. Uh, But um, close second is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. See, I can't even read it. (laughs) Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Is that a rich verse or what? Wow. Wow, we could go off for an hour on that, but we won't. So that's just a teaser. That's just a teaser for Colossians. So uh, Isaiah chapter sixty-two. Last week we talked about uh, sort of the end times events. You know, Isaiah is a prophetic book, and so Isaiah is doing a couple of different things. He's he's speaking um, throughout his book here. He's speaking to the historical events of the day, and yet he's also speaking, which he did largely through the first part of Isaiah, and then he's also speaking to a time that would be yet future for him. And many commentators say these chapters were sort of written for the benefit of people that were captive in Babylon, that had been captive um, from uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. We talked about that a bit in the past. And so he'd be, and and that comes up a little bit today. So he's talking a little bit to comfort and to encourage those captives in, in Babylon. But he's also speaking of end times events, and so you got to remember, from from Isaiah's perspective, it's all future, right? You know, uh, the events of, you know, 500 B.C. are future, and the events of of beyond now are yet future. And so Isaiah is is, is sort of preaching these things uh, prophetically, but we have to see kind of that we are also in a certain place on the timeline. And we talked about the timeline a little bit uh, last week. And if, uh, if you want more detail on that, I refer you back to the beginning of, of uh, the teaching last week. But basically, I believe... Uh, for a variety of reasons, and not everybody agrees on this, and so I wouldn't uh, fight anybody over this uh, by any means. There's some things we should fight over, right? Is Jesus the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him? Yeah, we should, we should you know, don't, don't cave on that one, right? And, um, you know, in times of events, you know, we kind of read the Bible and we take the Bible seriously, and is the Bible inerrant and infallible and in the inspired Word of God? Yeah, we don't cave on that one. Um, uh, but, you know, this is just kind of, as I, as I read it that way, this is how I see the events unfold. And that is uh, the rapture of the church and uh, then uh, a seven-year time of, of tribulation on planet earth uh, where uh, basically God um, essentially pours out His wrath, uh, but He also sort of refines the nation of Israel. And then at the end of that seven-year period of time on planet Earth, there's, uh, Jesus comes back and he sets up what's called a millennial kingdom. Some people refer to it as the kingdom age. And during that time, uh, there will be a, a kingdom, a worldwide kingdom, uh, headed up by Jesus, the King, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that'll be sort of operating a home base out of Jerusalem, out of the, out of modern day Israel, and uh, Satan is bound. Revelation tells us Satan is bound for those thousand years, and so uh, imagine thousand year on Earth without with Jesus on the throne and Satan bound. Sign me up, right? It'll be a great time. And uh, so then at the end of that, Satan is released for a brief time. Uh, and then after that, the final judgment, heaven and hell. And so a lot of these uh, references that Isaiah gives us, I give you that timeline just to tell you that a lot of these references that Isaiah is giving us are related to that millennial kingdom. And so um, uh, we have to kind of, uh, you know, some of it's sort of poetic and some of it's very literal. And so we have to kind of navigate that a little bit. And we do it honestly as best we can. Is that fair? Do I have all the answers to scriptural interpretation? My wife is busting trying not to say no because she, you know, or yes because she thinks yes is the right answer. But uh, no, I don't. And so we just navigate these things as best we can, right? Right. Chapter 62, verse 1, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. And so God is, I believe here, and he's, he's talking, he's been talking a little bit, but I think he's talking specifically now about uh, the time of the millennial kingdom, the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign when he is... Um, when he is reigning, Zion is another word for Jerusalem. And so he's looking forward to that time when righteousness will prevail from that, that kingdom coming out of Jerusalem. He longs for that day. He looks forward to that day. And you know what? If I were God and I'm not God, I would look forward to that day. And as a, as a, you know, as any loving father wants the best for his children, God wants righteousness for his people. Not so he can, not for any other reason than that, that's what's best for his, for his people, for his children. And so God is, is longing for that time, for the uh, millennial kingdom. And uh, so you may say, and we'll get through this a little bit uh, in chapter 63, but you may say, well, why doesn't God just snap his fingers then and make it happen? right? If he's longing for it so much, why does he not just snap his fingers and make it happen? And the reason is because he is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He's, he's giving time for, you know, the last person that's going to repent to repent. And, you know, it's, it's easy to snap your fingers in judgment, right? It's real easy to snap your fingers in judgment. And sometimes we have to kind of balance these things in our minds. Sometimes we think, wow, God is pretty harsh, and we're going to read some things here that sound, in chapter 63, that sounds like God is a little bit harsh, but we have to put that in the context of the whole scripture. Sometimes the things that we read about that seem harsh, He's actually given us warning, right? And so we, we apart from the love and grace offered through Jesus Christ, we're destined to hell, period. And so God rescues us from that, He gives us, he gives us Jesus Christ. To, as a sacrifice, as a payment for our sin that we deserved, and gives us opportunity to live with him eternally in heaven. And yet, he has to judge sin. And yet, aren't you glad he gets to decide all that and not us? And that's why we know we have to understand the heart of God, and the heart of God is love. The motivator, the, the primary motivator for all God is, does and has ever done Is love, And so as we learn the heart of God, that's that's one thing that we do get from the Scripture for sure. Uh, We see that. And so all that say, no, he hasn't snapped his fingers just yet. And I believe the reason he hasn't snapped his fingers just yet is because he is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. Aren't you glad he didn't snap his fingers before you got saved? Right? I am. You know, I—well, it's a long story. (laughs) I'm glad he didn't snap his fingers in the early 80s. Let me just say that. Right? That would have been a question mark in my mind. Verse 2, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. And so the Gentile nations will, will recognize the glory of that kingdom from Jerusalem. We've talked about that in, the, in some of the previous chapters. And, uh, and we notice you shall be called by a new name, he says here. You know, God loves to change the name of, of people throughout Scripture, right? Remember, uh, uh, Abram got a new name. His name was Abraham, right? God, uh, uh, Jacob got a new name. His name became Israel. Jacob was an interesting name. J- the word Jacob meant supplanter or basically manipulator, conniver, schemer, which is who Jacob was. He was named appropriately. And God changed his name to Israel meaning governed by God. It's like Jacob went to uh, being a man, uh, all about Jacob, all about making it happen, all about working the situation. Anybody resonate with that a little bit? Um, I do. And all, from there to then one night he wrestles with God and he surrenders. And now he's surrendered to God, so his name now is no longer a manipulator. His name now is governed by God. Don't we want to be governed by God? God loves to, so God changes names sometimes uh, for, for the, um, the meaning that's behind it and, and, and all of that. So he says he's going to give, uh, you know, give God's people a new name. says, you shall also, verse three, be a crown of glory in the, in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You should no longer be termed forsaken. That was one of the names. Nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. Okay, so again, if this, is, if this is to encourage those captives in Babylon, when they got carried off to Babylon, what happened to Jerusalem? It was decimated. So it was forsaken. It was deci- desolate. But now you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Now, um, commentators say that, um, at least the ones I read, says Hephzibah means delight and Beulah means married. And so what we see here is this picture played out. Their names are, the names of, 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 of Israel and its people have gone now from forsaken, desolate, and now their name is, is delight and married. The idea is that God delights in them enough to be married to them. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so, you know, the common metaphor throughout the Scripture is that the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, God likens the nation of Israel to uh, the bride and he's the groom. And in the New Testament, the church is likened um, to the bride of Christ and, and Christ is the groom. And so we see this, um, this metaphor kind of played out. Uh, but the idea here is uh, God marries these, uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, in a sense, uh, metaphorically, uh, particularly in the millennial kingdom as they serve him and they live in perfect harmony, which is, as we all know, how marriage works, perfect harmony. And so uh, as a young man uh, delights in his perfectly harmonious bride, uh, that's how it's going to work out in the millennial kingdom. So I got that. You say, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense now. I get it, right? He says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace, day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. And so, you know, part of God's love is protection. You know, sometimes we forget this, this aspect of love. Sometimes if I love my wife and if I love my, my family, there's certain things I'm going to do that might to the outsider seem harsh, but really what I'm doing is I'm protecting my family, right? I'm protecting my wife. I'm protecting my home. And, uh, and let's just say that's part of it. That's part of love. And in God's case here, he's saying, I set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. I'm protecting you. And for our part, for the, for the people's part, uh, our job is to not keep silent, but to proclaim the goodness of God. And to appreciate his protection. You know, we, we live inside the protection of God in many ways. And uh, we need to be thankful for that. Not to resist that, but to be thankful for that. You ever notice the, tempt- the temptation sometimes we have to resist God's protection? Right? If God says, uh, hey, I don't want you to partake in that thing. Right? Whatever that thing is. You can imagine what your own thing is. God says, I don't want you to partake in that thing, we might think there's two ways to look at that. We might say, that seems restrictive, right? Or we might say, that seems protective, right? Because as many of us have, have, you know, as we all stumble through life, and certainly I'm no exception, whenever, you know, there's been that thing that maybe seemed restrictive, seemed like, hmm, I think God's trying to pull a fast one on me. He's trying to spoil my fun. And so I go have that fun, right? And I realize in hindsight sometimes, oh, that was actually protective, right? And so we, on the inside of that protection, would do well to say, okay, God, that's protective. And here's again the punchline. Am I... You could look at that one way and just say, oh, he's trying to slide in those religious works on us again. No, I want us to see the heart of God. I want us to see the heart of God. Because sometimes, and we experience this as parents, sometimes um, uh, God will give us something, some sort of protective order, if you will, that we don't fully see the big picture, Right? Sometimes we as parents have to protect our children in ways that they don't see the big picture. They don't see the benefit of that protection. They see it as restrictive. But the more we understand, but, but hopefully as time goes on, they see that we have their best interest in heart. And, and then comes the time when even maybe they don't fully understand it. They could say, okay, well, I just have to trust that that's in my best interest. And as parents, we do it in you know, way flawed ways, right? But God does it perfectly. So think of God as the perfectly protective, loving, heavenly Father. And when he says, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't worship pagan idols. And they say, you kidding? Everybody's worshiping pagan idols. And what did it do? It led to their destruction. And so... um, be careful if you ever think God's, God's ways or God's, God's word is any way restrictive. That, that, that might be a heart check for you. He says, uh, verse 8. I'm sorry, he says in verse 7. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now, you notice we saw in verse 1, uh, he says, Jerusalem's, And for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. And so, you know, that was the picture of God not resting. And now, verse 7 is a little bit kind of a play on words here a little bit, that we as ambassadors of Christ, as, and the Jewish people in the Old Testament as ambassadors of, of God, Uh, we need to give him no rest till he establishes. It's kind of like as much as he longs for that uh, perfect peace and righteousness in the millennial kingdom, we need to long for that. We need to eagerly anticipate that just as much as he does. He says, verse 8, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine. For which you have labored, but those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it on my, in my holy courts. And so, in, Jew, in Israel's history, you know, so often as a result of their sin, you know, they would work hard and, and somebody else would get it. Right? They gathered up all the gold for Solomon's temple. Right? Uh, the Babylonians carried it off to Babylon. And so, uh, you know, the food that they would eat or the or the you know the the or that they would produce somebody else ate it. And so it's kind of a picture of, of, of their, their futility uh, when they're walking in sin. And God says, you know, the day's going to come when you live in righteousness that you're going to get to eat what you produce. Go through, verse 10, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. And so, Again, uh, the near fulfillment here is it's kind of a highway picture. You know, the idea is, is they're going to come back from Babylon into, into Jerusalem, into J- the area of, uh, of Judea there and resettle. But the, again, the far fulfillment is that during this time of, of the millennial kingdom, uh, there's going to be a lot of migration to Jerusalem. It's going to be sort of the central focus place. And um, how interesting, by the way, that... Jerusalem is such, is there a city anywhere in the world that gets as much notoriety in the press and in, in world events, right? So, uh, you know, you can read the news. Again, we talked about this a little bit last week. You can read the news and you can get this sense of, you know what, this kind of makes sense. You know, the the, the, the fact that God appears to be playing, sort of playing out his, his sovereign plan with the nation of Israel and the capital of Jerusalem, that seems pretty relevant for our time today. And so the fact is, it is. Verse 11, he goes on, he says, indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And so notice here, first of all, salvation is identified as him, right? Uh, And him is none other than Jesus Christ. Notice also that salvation is extended to the end of the world. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world his salvation extends. And people from all over will acknowledge that Jerusalem is a place that's not forsaken, but it's now sought out because Jesus is there. And so, again, we see just sort of the snapshot, chapter 62, of what the millennial kingdom will be like. Jesus is going to reign and rule from Jerusalem. Uh, nations f- from all over the world will see, wow, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cool kingdom, and we want to surrender to that, and there's going to be uh, righteousness. It'll be much like the Garden of Eden um, as, as it's described. And then, so chapter 63, he goes on, he, he, you know, there's, in order to, In order for God to bring about sort of this utopian millennial kingdom, the the unfortunate reality is sin has to be dealt with, right? Uh, Sin has to be judged. And the unfortunate reality is I believe it's possible. And, you know, I've had people ask me this question. Do you think God will let people go to hell? You know, here's the deal. I believe in God's sovereignty and all of that, uh, you know. But I believe man has free choice. How do those things work together? I don't fully understand because God's brain's bigger than mine. But if I choose to reject the grace of God for the sum total of all my days on earth, and I say, I don't have anything to do with God. God's enough of a gentleman that he won't force his way on me. And I will honestly bear the brunt of that. And so uh, that's a hard thing to talk about, but I believe it's the reality. I believe it's taught in the Scripture. I believe it's taught throughout the Scripture. And, and yet uh, we have to kind of get through that sort of to get to the other side. And so we see that in our own lives. We have to get through—we have to come to grips with the fact that we're sinners, We'll talk more about this in chapter 64, but we have to come to grips with the fact that we're sinners, right? Which ones of us are sinners? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, all, all. So we got to come to grips with our sin. That's the bad news. The good news, Romans chapter 6, is that Jesus saves us, Right? Right? For the wages of sin is death. That's what we've all earned. We all earned a wage. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's available, right? All have sinned. That's bad news. Good news is grace is available, right? Abundant life is available here and now today. Eternal life is available uh, after this life. And yet we can't ignore it. It's a reality. and So um, he's talking about this a bit in chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Now, we we sang that song, Mighty to Save. He is very mighty to save. And this is a bit of a poetic sort of description. Edom, you may recall was the nation that was descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, and they were perpetual enemies of the people of God, of the, of the Jewish people. They were perpetual enemies. And so um, most commentators say this Edom is sort of a, just a poetic reference to basically all the enemies of God. Bozrah was uh, one of its pro, uh, predominant cities. And so the idea here is, um, uh, you know, the enemies of God are coming, but God is righteous and he's mighty to save. It says, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one has with, was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. And so this speaks of Jesus. It, it is fulfilled, I believe, very literally. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. We see sort of the New Testament corollary of this verse. So often, you know, we, we always say the Scripture interprets Scripture. The Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. And so often we see sort of a parallel verse that gives us just a little more detail. And so... Um, Revelation 19, we find ourselves basically at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 starts the millennial kingdom. And so at that very end of the millennial kingdom, or I'm sorry, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming down and it says, verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. So um, a reference to Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So we know from John chapter 1 that now we're talking about Jesus because his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine presses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So you can turn back to Isaiah. And so the picture here is, there's sort of a two-fold picture of, you know, number one, we see obviously, uh, we know Jesus uh, was covered with blood when he was crucified. But we also see that Jesus, when he comes at the end of the tribulation, he'll come in judgment. And it says, you know, as he's like treading the wine press, uh, you know, if you're, you know, you, you've seen those movies or whatever of, you know, when people walk on the grapes, you know what I'm talking about? When you walk on the grapes, uh, you get grape juice on your legs, right? And so Jesus will be, you know, the picture is his his apparel will be red and his garment uh, is going to be like somebody who treads on a wine press. And so the reality is uh, he'll come in judgment and there'll be bloodshed in that judgment. Now, again, you might say, wow, that sounds harsh. You've been trying to tell me that God is loving and all of that. And here's what I'd say to that. He's warning us, right? He's warning us. What could be more loving than warning us of danger that's yet to come? Warning us of the danger of rejecting him. That's a warning. That's, a, that's his love. That's, that's the heart that he has. But he has to be uh, righteous. Because he is righteous and he has to judge sin. And so uh, where that love and that judgment come together is that he warns his people. I believe somehow, you know, you could say, well, then, you know, then comes up, well, what about the person in, you know, across the ocean or wherever that never heard of, never heard of Jesus? And that's a fair question. And you know what my answer to that is? God knows. God knows. But if I, if I believe the Bible that I know from cover to cover tells me that God is loving, God is fair, God is just, God is all of that, then I know that God won't send anybody to hell unless they choose to go there. I know that. How does that work out? I don't have to know that part. That's not my realm, right? Right? I'm, believe me, the older I get, the more I am content to define my realm and stay there, (laughs) right? We all have a realm, and I'm happy to stay in my realm, right? So if God could move, could do anything, could, anybody ever took a philosophy class in college? You know how to do that. You learn how to do this. You get extra credit if you learn how to do this. So if God could do anything, could he make a rock so big that he Finish the sentence. Can't move it. Can God, if he can do anything, can he make a rock so big that he can't move it? Well, first of all, it's a ridiculous question. Second of all, it's not my realm, right? So that was a side note. So encouragement for all of us to stay in our realms as it comes to God. So God will be just, but he'll be loving, and we know him to be very, very loving. So he goes on, verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting play on words as well. Um, Turn back, if you would, to the left, Isaiah chapter 61. And we alluded to this last week, and I'll just review it briefly. Briefly. Isaiah chapter 61 starts out, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to proclaim to, I'm sorry, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, you may recall we talked about this last week, uh, I believe Luke chapter 4. Jesus shows up, and he comes into the temple, uh, or, or to, the, um, to the synagogue, and it's his turn to read the scripture, and he reads these verses. But he stops at the part where it says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He did not read the sentence that says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And so, having not read that last line, he closes the book and then he, and you know, all eyes are on him. It's kind of one of those awkward moments, I'm sure. And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine that? Man, I'd love to see a videotape of that one, right? Everybody's jaw would drop, and they'd say, I think you just said that you're the Messiah, right? Right? But interestingly, he said he didn't say in the day of vengeance of our God. That wasn't to be fulfilled in Jesus' earthly lifetime. But that will be fulfilled yet future, right? And so those first two verses of Isaiah 61 were partially fulfilled in Jesus' earthly ministry, and they'll be more completely fulfilled during the tribulation. For the day of vengeance, back to 63, for the day of vengeance is what we're talking about, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And again, I like the the little, I don't know if it's a play on words intentional, but God talks about a day of vengeance, and I believe it's a deliberate contrast to talk about the year of my redeemed. Right? God is going to have sort of a day of vengeance where he deals with sin, but his primary motive in that is for the much longer time of redemption of his people and of fellowship with his children, right? But yet, you got to go through that sort of that vengeance, that, that, that righteous judgment in order to get to uh, the redeemed part. And so the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked. But there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own ha- arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I've trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And so uh, here he's talking about that, you know, only Jesus is able to judge and to redeem, and, and you know, only Jesus himself hung on the cross. He did it alone, um, and he brought salvation by his own arm. Isaiah makes a little bit of a transition now in verse 7. He says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them, according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And so notice this. It's interesting in the context of God's judgment. Isaiah wants to move the dialogue quickly. He has to say what he's got to say, just like I have to say what I have to say. But we want the dialogue to move, right, to uh, the loving kindnesses of the Lord. All the good that he's bestowed upon us, his great goodness, uh, according to his mercies, the multitude of his loving kindnesses, that is clearly the heart of God. For he said, surely they're my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. And in all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them and his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So all the days of old now is a reference to, you know, what's happened in Jewish, in Jewish history, right? Up to this point. And what he's telling us is, uh, you know, whenever they were afflicted, God was afflicted, right? You ever notice his parents, maybe let's say even parents of adult kids, Right? Your adult kids struggle, and do you say deep in your heart, you might say it outside, but deep in your heart, do you say, oh, well, too bad for them. They're over 18. Last I checked, they're on their own. Do you say that? No. When they struggle, what do you do? You struggle. When they rejoice, what do you do? Rejoice. Why? Because you're loving parents, right? Right? And God knows that. God says, in their affliction, he was afflicted. You ever notice this? And it's, sometimes we think God is so, so big and so all-knowing and so all-everything that he's sort of above getting afflicted. But the reality is, when we mess up, when we you know, reap what we sow that's not good. When we, you know, sow to the flesh, we reap corruption, Galatians tells us. When that happens to us, in a real way, that afflicts God. And, you know, again, uh, you know, our motivation is not to be religiously pure, but our motivation is to live in response to the reality that we know that God has loved us and has been so good to us. You know, as I think through that, I don't want to afflict God right? I don't want my sin to afflict God. But he said in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And so in his love and his pity, he redeemed them. Basically, it's, you know, it's a one verse uh, summary of the nation of Israel. They did stupid stuff. He bailed them out. They did stupid stuff. He bailed them out. Had to punish them once in a while. Bailed them out, right? Over and over and over and over again. And that was sort of their history. But they rebelled, And they grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. And so sometimes he had to punish them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? And so, again, talking about sort of the person now that's in in a difficult situation. Uh, Again, it might be uh, talking about the person that's captive in Babylon. It might be talking about us, as it applies to us. I mean, it's not as it applies to us, consider this. Here, remember the days of old. Let's say uh, this is you. Put your name here. Then I remember the days of old. Moses and his people saying, hey, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? You ever thought this? Yeah, I read that stuff in the Bible. God took care of them. here I sit in my situation, in my circumstance. Everybody ever ever feel that way? We feel that way at times. Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble as a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. I believe God would say to us today, that even as, you know, this might, the captive, captives in Babylon, they needed to hear this. They might have said, hey, where was God? You know, I remember God in the, uh, you know, in the burning bush and leading people out of, the, out of Egypt and all this, but what about us here in, Bob, in Babylon? Well, what happened to him in Babylon? Ezra chapter 1, they were totally, by God's grace, released to go back, Right? And we might find ourselves in the midst of a situation today that we feel like, man, God could part the Red Sea, but he can't take care of my situation. Well, maybe that he just hasn't done it yet, or maybe he's doing it in a way that, again, protects us in ways that we don't understand, or maybe He's just knows a bigger picture than we do, but if we trust that he's good and that he wants the best for us, it's easier to sort of sit there and say, well, I don't understand, but... Okay. And I think sometimes in life we have to, part of our spiritual journey is we have to be okay with the idea of saying, I don't fully understand what's going on right now, but I just trust in you and okay, because I know you're good. Verse 15, he goes on to look, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our Father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O oh Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. And so, again, he's kind of playing out this prayer of this sort of hypothetical person. And the prayer is that of somebody who feels like God's far away. And so maybe I'm describing you. Maybe I'm describing those captives in Babylon, but maybe I'm describing you or me today, right? The prayer of somebody who feels like they're far away. Can I tell you this? We can say, look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me? Are they restrained? You know, they might be restrained for a reason or the the, the arm of the Lord might be restrained for a reason, but the arm of the Lord is not incapable of rescuing us. The heart of the Lord is not restrained. God's heart of love for us never changes. And so sometimes, again, just a picture of we need to be careful to trust God but do you ever notice what sometimes we do when we get in that situation? It seems like there's no way out, and it seems like God's not coming through for us. And we know that he did back in the day, but, you know, he just doesn't quite do it for, for now, for our situation. We tend to then turn inward, What right? And then, next thing you know, we've got a pity party. And next thing you know, all the world's problems are sort of tangled up in my situation here and now, right? So we've got to be careful to keep looking to Jesus, the author and what? Finisher of our faith. We got to keep looking beyond ourselves. Verse 17, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Can I say this just briefly? When we tend to draw inward, when we tend to focus on ourselves and our situation and, you know, in, in this whole context and stop looking to God. Can I tell you this? And I've seen this many, many times. And I've experienced this personally. When we do that, we tend to get the facts mixed up. You ever notice that? We were reading about this this week, right? Remember the Israelites in the desert? They're doing this, right? Man, you brought us out here in the desert and all we got is this manna, right? I remember back when we were slaves in Egypt, right? We were eating prime rib every night, right? Right? Were they eating prime rib every night? Leeks and melons, right? All the good stuff. Was it good in Egypt for those people? No, it was horrible. They were slaves, right? God rescued them from that. But when we get self-focused, right, we tend to uh, get a little fuzzy on the details. So be careful about that. In this case, oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? Did God make them stray from their ways? I don't think so. I don't think so. James tells us, hey, if you sin, don't say, hey, God made me sin, right? That's your New Testament corollary on that one, right? Don't say, God made me sin. Your holy people have possessed it, but a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. So here we are in Babylon, and, and the people, you know, our, our adversaries, they basically beat down your sanctuary, and it's, it's like we never were your children right? Does God cast, us, cast off his children? No, he doesn't. So it's okay to identify the circumstance. In this case, the destruction of Jerusalem. In our case, it might be whatever. It's okay to identify the circumstance. But let's be careful not to look so inward that that's all we see. Let's keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And yeah, you can remember that he parted the waters, right? And I would encourage this, even in my own heart, it's okay to remember that he parted the waters and they did great miracles and all that, but I think I should more so remember he has always loved me. He will never stop loving me. It's his heart for me that never changes. Whatever he did in that circumstance, that was for those people at that time. If he, and he can do, based on his love, whatever he wants to in my circumstance now. I'm not expecting him to part the waters. I need to not do that. But I need to expect him to continue to love me, which he does. In chapter 64, he kind of carries on. There's, think of this as like the same idea, not really even a chapter break. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Rend means to tear. Oh, that you would tear the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Kind of like, oh, that you would like, break the barrier between heaven and us, that you would come down and, and deliver us and take care of us rescue us as fire burns brushwood as fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence you know sometimes when we get focused when we get so self-focused and we get whiny right what do we want god to do to our enemies right oh god you know what fire would be a good thing to do to them that'd be awesome right? Can you take care of our enemy? I'm in a situation, God, right now, and it's not because of my sin, but it's because that guy wronged me back in 1978. And, 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 you know, I'm not bitter about it, but it was 1978, June of 1978, that that guy wronged me. And, you know, Lord, if you would just bring fire down on that guy, the world would be a happy place, right? right. We do that, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. He said to himself, uh, when you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. Like when you came down on Mount Sinai with Moses and the tablets, the mountains shook. You were awesome then. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. And so, you know, no man can see, can find God with the eye or with the ear. You know, the spiritual ear can hear, but, uh, but you know, physically... Nobody finds God that way. But notice here, we see, and Isaiah is sort of, I think of it as Isaiah kind of has walked us into a little bit of a trap, right? Isaiah has kind of given us this hypothetical prayer that we could probably all identify with to some extent. Oh, God, I remember back when you did this, and, and you know, I'm getting my facts mixed up a little bit, and, and uh, now I'm kind of just drawn in on myself, and, you know, it'd be good if you put fire on my adversaries back when you did awesome things. I wish you'd do them like now. And, you know, not even since the beginning of the world has anybody known how awesome you are, except we know how awesome you are now. And you meet, and so, and so he says, and then Isaiah slips this in, nor has any eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. I love, in my mind, this is like a pretty deliberate statement. God acts for the person who waits for him. So when you're in that situation and it feels like you just want to crawl in a hole, does that mean God is asleep? No, God acts for the person. He acts on behalf of the person who waits for him. You know, again, as we grow in our journey with the Lord, clearly, clearly one of the greatest disciplines we can hope for is to be able to wait patiently on the Lord. How many times do the Psalms tell us, wait patiently on the Lord? I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard my cry. If it seems like God is quiet, it does not mean that God is no longer God. It just means that God is quiet. And so he says, God acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him and you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. And so God meets us. Meets the person who is thankfully and faithfully obedient and remembers God in his ways. The thankful, obedient person needs to remember that all we need to do is just be saved and to surrender our lives to him and let him take care of the details. Maybe there's something in that situation that we need to be learning. Maybe he's waiting for us to get the lesson and then he's going to deliver it. And then he goes on, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away i believe in a sense this is sort of the the turning point verse in this whole dialogue because here's the reality if i'm in a situation and i'm whining about it and i think god needs to deliver then subconsciously, or consciously maybe even, part of the reason that I am the way I am, when I'm, I'm talking about, I have to describe it because none of you guys know what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about a self-focused pity party, right? Do I need to like draw a picture of it? Right? Anybody know? A self-focused pity party. When I'm there, and I think God needs to deliver, the reason I'm there, one of the fundamental reasons I'm there there is because I think I deserve better treatment than this, right? I don't realize that all of my righteousness, every good thing I think I do, is like filthy rags. And I won't go into the detail of it, but the Hebrew, the original Hebrew of filthy rags is disgusting, right? And when I think that my righteousness is like worth something then I'm a setup to not see the big picture and not to appreciate all that God has done. Does that make sense? It's critical that we get this. And we play it out in subtle ways. You know, I've seen over the years, I was thinking about this this morning. I've seen over the years, various people come into this church, right? All you guys came in today. Thank you for being here. That's nice. But over the years, I've seen some people come in and, and, it's, and it's, kind of, it's fascinating to me. Some people come in, they'll say, or maybe I'll talk to them, maybe I'm you know, inviting them to church or whatever like that. And you guys probably experienced the same thing. And sometimes they'll be like, sometimes I've had, I've had these conversations with people that are kind of like, I don't know, man, I just don't know that I'm worthy, right? Or they'll say things like, is it okay if I wear blue jeans, right? Or they'll say like, oh, my life is so messed up. Or they'll say, I think lightning will strike if I walk in there, right? You know the kind of person, right? Maybe you are the kind of person. I see other people. I remember one guy came in here one time. And uh, this was a long time ago. This was where we were at the other building. Came in, sat and listened. At the end of service. This is the first time here. At the end of service, he comes up, he says, you know, it's kind of a pretty cool place. You know, I've been to s- several churches. I've kind of been, you know, involved in leadership at various places. You know, i got a pretty good skill set. I think I could really add a lot to this, to this group, right? Now, as the pastor, which of those two guys do I want to, am I more enthusiastic about? Right? Person A or B? <laughs> a, Right? Because, like, this guy comes and he says, hey, I, you know, I gotta, in my mind, I'm like, I remember thinking of the day, I was like, well, you should be the pastor because you apparently got more going on than I do, right? I feel like I'm just stumbling one step at a time. And, you know, there's, you know, you know we all need to not be sort of like, you know, false humility or anything like that and, and, you know, all that. And we all have different backgrounds that we come to church with or that we come through life with. But the reality is, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And whatever we do, even a good thing, even a good thing, it's like if it's meant to be an act of righteousness, like I'm trying to be righteous, then it's it's worthless. If it's an expression of thanks to God, that's cool. And so, when we forget that our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, we forget the big picture. We focus on ourselves. We focus on our situation. We think we deserve better. We think God needs to deliver. And the reality is we are all, we are, it's again, sort of the New Testament corollary of this is Romans 3. We're all sinners. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All are sinners. And, you know, even as you think about it in, in terms of, of, of life, people sometimes if in, in, you know, I think back to those philosophy class, I took like a philosophy class in school, right? And one of the fundamental things they stroke their beards over is like, is, are human beings inherently good or bad, right? You ask that question in a college philosophy class, and you're, you're done for the hour, for sure, right? Because nobody can agree on the, the answer to the question, right? If you agree that scripture is inspired by God, then you say the answer to the question is human beings are inherently bad, and you can quote Romans 3 and Isaiah 64 and period, and it doesn't go on for an hour. And if we can move from that point, if we can accept that point Wow, we're all bad. Wow, the wages of sin is death. So the fact that I am part of all, and I am therefore bad, and the wages of sin is death, and therefore I am destined for death, eternal death, I got a problem that needs a solution. And his name is Jesus. That's the reality of the Christian life. So, once we realize that filthy rags part, once we realize we're sinners, once we realize we, we're in trouble and we need a Savior and his name is Jesus, then we can move on. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquity. So that's more of the righteousness of filthy rags. But now, O oh Lord, now that I realize that I'm a sinner and, and the consequence of that and the problem and the solution... Now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are potter. You are potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O oh Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please, look, we are all your people. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I can go from being uh, a, all my righteousness is like filthy rags, uh, not worthy of anything in the eyes of God, recognizing that, accepting Jesus as my Savior, now he's my God, and I'm the clay, he is the potter. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You don't have to turn there, but the next book over, Jeremiah chapter 18, God speaks to Jeremiah uh, to give him kind of a picture of this. Word of the Lord came to, word which came to Jeremiah chapter 18 verse 1 from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel, right? So you got the picture. The potter's just making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So what's the potter do when the vessel is marred? He turns it into a lump of clay again and starts over. So it was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. Isn't that rich? As it seemed good to the potter to make. So you see this? All my righteousness are like filthy rags. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm one of those. I recognize that I have an eternal problem. I recognize that Jesus is is my Savior and the solution to my problem. And the only solution, because he says I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He was either telling the truth or telling a lie at that point. I believe him to be a man of truth and, so, and a God of truth. And so that's the truth. And so now I'm saved, and now I'm the clay, and he's the potter, and he can do with me whatever he wants. And I'm no longer back at this place. I'm entitled to, like, some kind of certain treatment by God. Rewind the tape. If I feel like, you know, this Christianity thing, it's about doing good. And I've done enough good, and my good outweighs my bad. And you know, I love what people always say. You know, I never killed anybody. Oh, congratulations! So uh, you know, my good outweighs my bad, and so you know, I think I'm entitled to like a certain kind of treatment from God, right? And it totally unravels. It totally unravels. I am more than happy. To be the clay in the hands of the potter that I know to be Yahweh God that's described in the Bible, that reveals himself in his word. I am more than thrilled to be used in his hands however he wants, as he pleases, Jeremiah says. It's a great picture. He says, your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? So again, just sort of a little bit of a postscript. You know, if I'm in the hands of a potter, I mean, if I'm Clay in the hands of a potter, and he wants to, like in his mind, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, he decides to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, I'm going to say, all right, he knows better than I do, right? He knows better than I do. If he wants to uh, let life play out like it is uh, or orchestrate it however he's playing it out on, on earth today, and to me it seems like, wow, if I were God, I'd do it a little bit differently, Right? Then I need to, I'm the clay. He's the potter. And I need to say, okay. So, chapter 62, we start out by identifying the millennial kingdom. We can look forward to that day when he reigns on earth. In the meantime, we realize that God has to deal with sin, specifically my sin, and he did it through Jesus Christ alone. And finally, we seek God in our situations, even in our challenges. And as we recognize that he's loving and gracious and righteous, then we know that our righteousness is worthless apart from him. And as we walk through that in our minds, we come to a point of being clay in the hands of an all-knowing, all-loving, all-gracious, all-merciful heavenly potter. What a great place to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so much greater at making something out of our lives than we are. And so, Lord, we ask that you would mold us and shape us. And, Lord, sometimes even starting over to mold us and shape us. Or sometimes what feels like starting over to mold us and shape us into your image into the image that you want us to be, the vessel that you want us to be, that you designed us to be. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of just being your children. And so we pray, Lord, that we would give, live lives that bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, I do pray for those times that we get into a bit of a pity party. Lord, I know I can do it like a champion. And so, Lord, when we go there, I pray that you would make it brief, that you would remind us of your goodness, that you would remind us of your great love for us, and that you would cause us to focus on you and not on ourselves. So have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.